you know, after high school, I left my hometown because everybody was just kind of like, I, I don't want to, like, I can go do what I'm doing here somewhere else. That was Dave Budworth, a.k.a. Dave the Butcher. I'm your host, Jeff Hunt. Welcome to Storied San Francisco, a weekly podcast where San Franciscans from all walks of life share their stories, and you get to know your neighbors. In this podcast, Dave talks about growing up in nearby Santa Rosa. His parents showed dogs and took Dave to dog shows in the city when he was a kid. He shares the story of a trip to Australia as a young man that awakened him to some of his privileges. He came back to San Francisco, where he found work as a butcher and fell in love with the trade. Dave ends this episode describing the type of butcher work he fell into. Here's Dave. So person I'd never met, um, he came from he came from the Alsace region, which was Germany at the time. Um, came to America when he was 16 in the late 1800s. Um, he was already all, like a master butcher, already trained as a butcher in Germany, because they're very efficient. Um, and uh, lived in Chicago, worked in the cattle yards there. Um, met my, what would be my great grandmother. Um, met her in Chicago. They were both from the Alsace region. Obviously back then, you know, immigrants kind of stick together and you, same, you know. Um, then they moved to San Francisco and he opened a shop on Polk and Green, um, which obviously isn't there anymore, but I ride by that corner on my way to work every day because I live like four blocks away. Um, so he got wiped out in the, uh, the 1906 earthquake. And so he uprooted the family and moved to Hawaii. Yeah. And so like, I got pictures of my grandmother, my dad's mom, on like a Harley Davidson that looks like a bicycle on Waikiki Beach with no hotels in like 1907 crazy so he, he he and i my great grandfather and i have very similar like he traveled a lot he moved around a lot he ended up in la for the last part of his life but you know he was germany chicago san francisco hawaii whereas i've been santa rosa santa cruz san francisco berlin oakland amsterdam um you know we both have and, and i didn't become a butcher because i wanted to i i really kind of fell into it and found this weird love for it um when i was about 24. i know you said you never met your great-grandfather do you know what um sort of drew them to san francisco before they don't um i think it was just kind of that you know late 1800s um san francisco was prosperous right um and i think i from what i would imagine knowing what i know about him that would be, you know, he would have moved here for that. Um, and he was able to open his own butcher shop. And, um, you know, it's, uh, he did that, like I said, and he did that until the earthquake. Um, and I still have his knives that he brought. Um, I still, on a daily basis, I still use the knives that my great grandfather brought from Germany in 18, like 90. Holy fuck. You know, that don't tell so the health, they're carbon steel, so don't tell the health department right. for whatever stupid reason. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I still, I still use, you know, I still use his knives and what an heirloom. That's fucking awesome. That's yeah, really cool. Um, I grew up with this knife in my my dad's kitchen drawer, you know. And when I was a kid, I was always like, ah, don't touch that knife. It's super scary. It's like giant, you know. And like now, it's now I spin it my fingers and wield it like a drumstick, you know. <laughs> and it cuts what I'm guessing is a fucking yeah. excellent cut to me. Um, yeah. You said the shop was at uh, Polk and Green. Do you happen to know where they lived? Where above? They lived above the shop. Oh shit! Of course, as you do. Yeah. 
And they, um, and we found that out because we found phone, re- like a phone book back in that time period would have, it would have like your name and it would be like, you know, like so-and-so podcaster and your phone number, like in the phone book, it had your profession and your address. And so I'm like, cousin found an old phone book with my great grandfather's address and like profession and whatever. That's kind of how we dialed it down into like where it was. Wow. So, you, and then, so you said um, there was a lot of moving around Hawaii, uh, Los, or, uh, Los Angeles. What got your family back up into Northern California and eventually Santa Rosa, where you were born? Do you know the story there? So my, that's, that's all my dad's side of the family. Um, my mom's side of the family, they came over on covered wagons to, they ended up in Cloverdale. Uh, my great grandmother on my mom's side was the first white baby born in, in Flora, Oregon which is kind of like Northeast Oregon where like where there's nothing. Right. Um, but that's why it's named Flora, Oregon. Cause she was the first white baby born there. So then they came from there to Cloverdale. Uh, and then my mom, uh, my mom was raised in Hillsburg. And then, um, on my dad's side, my great grandfather came back from Hawaii and ended up in, uh, ended up in Sebastopol, raised his daughter. Then he moved to LA and my grandmother, my dad's mom met, um, my dad's father, he was a farmer in Hillsburg. So my dad grew up on an apple ranch in, or in Sebastopol. My dad grew up on an uh, apple ranch in Sebastopol. Okay. My mom's from Hillsburg. My dad's from Sebastopol. I grew up in Santa Rosa. So I, it's like, I, I'm kind of like, uh, you know, old pioneer blood of that air, Sonoma County kind of thing. Like I, yeah. one of our, fa- our family was one of the first to settle Hillsburg back in the day. Whoa. And, uh, yeah so like Very and then cool. and then as soon as i got out of high school i was like peace the fuck out <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i'm out of here you're all small-minded <laughs> no uh can you take us through um growing up so you said you're born in 65 so you grew up like end of the 60s and into the 70s what was uh santa rosa and if you know if you ever ventured out much what was northern california like back then it was definitely overall a lot more small townish. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Santa Rosa was the biggest city between San Francisco and Portland, and I think still is. Um, mm-hmm. But it was still a small farm. Hillsburg, Hill, there was no such thing as wine country. Um, you know, Napa was a bunch of hillbillies. Uh, San Elena was a bunch of hicks. Uh, Hillsburg was all pretty much all Mexican prune picking dudes. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of migrant farmer farm workers there. Um, you know, Santa Santa Rosa was definitely kind of the white people farm town when i was growing up there um you know we were we uh we thought we were the cool kids you know because we were the like big city santa rosa big city right Fuck yeah um you know and, and my parents were married in 57 but i wasn't born till 65 so obviously my parents had a lot of generational issues mm. um whereas you know by the time 1975 rolled around and i'm 10 years old i just want to be steven tyler and get high and and like listen to music my parents were like you don't like you know, Gene Autry or like, you know, <laughs> you know like leave Lawrence, Lawrence Welk. Oh yeah. I grew up on that <laughs> shit. Oh yeah. man. It, but it was definitely like the seventies were definitely more carefree than the world is today. Right. And I can look back and be like, Oh, it was such a great time. But you know, for certain races and colors, it wasn't a great time. Right. Um, you know, it was very much that kind of, it was still kind of white people land. Um, yeah. You know, like I didn't go to school with a black kid till I was 12. Oh, wow. and, and, I, and I wasn't like upper rich people. I, I was, you know, we were kind of like bottom end middle class. Like my parents worked really hard to keep me in shoes and put me in a good school and all that. Mm-hmm. We were, we were never rich by any standard, but 
Santa Rosa was very much a white town. We had like one neighborhood where the black people lived, one neighborhood where the, you know, like brown people lived and the rest of it was white. I was always kind of the insecure kid who, who like bonded with the stoners when I was 11. So I was always, the, I was always out in the field at lunch, smoking cigarettes and getting high. And those were the people that accepted me, you know, cause I wasn't like great at sports. I didn't like sports. I was like, I don't get it. I don't want to run around for no reason. You know? <laughs> this makes no sense to me. And uh, I was right. so super into music and, um, uh, and like history when I was young, I was still, I'm super into history, but, sure. um, yeah, I was just super into like music. Music was definitely like, and still is like the driving thing in my life that makes me, you know, happy. And, when did you uh, start going to uh, shows when you were still in Santa Rosa or? Uh, yeah, when I was still in Santa Rosa, I started going, I think my first concert was 19, probably like 1980. Okay. Yeah, like ninth grade, like freshman in high school. And who did you uh, see? Ted Nugent and the Scorpions opening on their first tour. <sighs> So animal magnetism uh, tour. And then, you know, then it was like, I was a big Van Halen kid for a while. And, you know, and uh, yeah. And, and then big Led Zeppelin head, but never saw them. And, you know, and then, and as I got older, um, I, yeah, I just embraced more music and, you know, I was super metalhead until I was like 20. And then all of a sudden I had a friend who turned me on to like jazz. And I was like, oh, I was like, what the fuck is this? And then he turned me on to like Django Reinhardt and some other stuff. And like, he turned me on to poetry and all of a sudden I was super into like that whole kind of beatnik, but also like, you know, yeah. So that's kind of, you know, after high school, I left my hometown because everybody was just kind of like, I don't want to like, I can go do what I'm doing here somewhere else. Right. And, and when I was young, my mother, uh, my mother always instilled in me like kind of a, a sense of travel. And she always taught me to write. Like she made, like sat me down and made me learn cursive and, and ever since I was a kid, I've always been a big journal writer. Like I love to write. And, um, she got me, she kind of turned me on to music, even though like she was super into the carpenters, but she exposed me to music. So right. her, her version of music was very white, you know, Johnny Mathis, the carpenters very, and, but you know, my mom very much, um, gave me a sense of culture and, you okay. know, always encouraged me to travel. Did and she travel? Do you know? Like where did she got, get that from? My mom didn't. So my parents raised collies when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And so I spent all my weekends as a, as a elementary school, you know, when I was younger going to dog shows oh. and like we had a motor home and, and we always had like 10 dogs in our backyard. My dad was a breeder and, and, you know, so they would make money. That was like their hobby. Um, so I had a whole set of friends that were just like my dog show friends that I would okay. see and, and like where we would like go camp at the cow palace for three nights, you know, and whatever, whatever I I've been in every fairground in the, in the, in California, like when it's not open, you know, I have and, to uh, throw this in real fast uh, with Fred Willard passing recently, my fiance and I went back and watched best in show. How accurate is that portrayal of that world? It's pretty accurate. Yeah. <laughs> It is. It's super. Uh, it's a really weird world, the dog show world. Right. It, it's a lot of like, yeah, it's weird. It's when I look back, I'm just like, you know, like I would go with my parents to people's houses and it was like a lot of white trash people, like mm -hmm. kind of white trashy. Like, you know, like I've got like 30 dogs and my, there's dog poop all over my house kind of people right. like that kind of thing. <laughs> right. Um, and also a lot of like people that are really like with anything. Right. You know, you got like these, this person doesn't like that person and they all talk smack about each other. It's, it's very much a whole nother social world. Right. Uh, you know, but then like my dad, you know, like grooming dogs, like he would like, 
you know, like blow dry the dogs and like cut their whiskers and, and like, you know, put, put cornstarch on their, on their paws. So they're whiter and like just all this kind of crazy stuff. And they really tried to get me into it. I was like, yeah, no, not my thing. I don't want yeah. to show dogs, but you know, I'll it's like, caring like way too much. I love dogs, but, but do- it's like, that you care way too much about some weird shit. About yeah. Dogs. It's, it's a, it's a whole nother world. And, uh, yeah, it's fucking weird, man. Yeah. Totally okay. Weird. So, um, so you, so your mom ins- uh, inspired a sense of travel and, and getting yeah. out. And so, what happened after when you when you set sail or got your wings? Where did you go and what did you do? I left Santa Rosa with my girlfriend at the time when I was nineteen. Moved okay. to Santa Cruz. Um, lived there with her and her dad, and then her and I broke up. And then I got into like a a serious crank habit. And uh, was, was just doing tons of drugs and just like, you know, like, yeah, not hanging out with cool people. And, and I was kind of, you know, like school's not my thing. Like I learn really, I love to learn. And I'm like, I'm very self-educated. But like my mom always wanted me to go to college and stuff. So, you know, 20 to 24 was kind of my college. But it was like learning that I shouldn't stay up for eight days at a time and, and you know, stuff like that. And. Maybe, yeah. maybe my girlfriend being a prostitute's not a great thing, you know? Like, right, right. Um, so I kind of did that in Santa Cruz for uh, like, I don't know, like four years till the earthquake hit in 89. Okay. Um, and I was in Santa Cruz when the earthquake hit and that was some crazy shit. And um, at that time I was kind of homeless. So I was kind of living on people's porches and couches. Oh, wow. And um, so I kind of hit a point where I was like, I can't do this anymore. So I moved all my stuff to my parents' house, and uh, and then uh, I came to San Francisco, and uh, this chick that I was supposed to stay with in the Tenderloin, she wouldn't answer. I kept calling her from, like, payphone back in the day. So this is, like, you know, what, like, 1991, end of 91. And um, so I called my buddy that lived in the Lower Haight, or Hayes Valley, actually. And he was like, yeah, I'll come pick you up. And I, like, you know, had a sleeping bag and a backpack and 100 bucks to my name. That was pretty much what I was at. So he picked me up. And that was kind of my introduction to living in San Francisco. Yeah, so my buddy, we get to his house. Um, and right then, that, that area was kind of, it was like right on the border of Lower Haight, Hayes Valley. Mm-hmm. And like, I had no idea. I'd never lived in San Francisco. I'd spent a bunch of time, like, spending time in San Francisco, but I never lived in San Francisco. So I moved to, I moved to his girlfriend's house on 24th and Petro for like six months. Okay. And um, I would take the 33 from 24th and Petro to Ashbury and Frederick, where I, were, I got a job at the Ashbury Market which is okay. where my cousin worked. And he got me a job at the Ashbury Market back in the day when it was owned by the Wongs. Ashbury Market is still Ashbury Market, but it's on like the third different owner since then. Okay. Like the, the Chinese family that owned it sold it like 15 years ago. Okay. Um, but they had it. So they, they, had a, they had a market in the 60s on Laguna. And when they put the freeway in, or even the 50s, when they built the freeway, the city was like, yeah, eminent domain, you got to go. Here's some money. So they opened up Ashbury Market on Ashbury Frederick, which at the time wasn't a really rich neighborhood, but then it blew up. So that market, like they made bank at that place. Do you remember your very first time to visit San Francisco and your impressions of it? My earliest memory would probably be like when I was, you know, eight to 10. Okay. Um, I remember going downtown to see my godfather with my mom and dad. Um, and then I remember from that age, like my really, my earliest impressions of San Francisco, besides going to the zoo, um, 
was we always would be going to some dog show thing, right? So we were always taking like 19th Ave. And I remember being a kid, being like 10 years old and thinking like, I would never live here because it's always cloudy and always gray. And like, you know, the house is on 19th Avenue. Who the fuck wants to live there, right? You know, it's like, and I've never been a kid, like I would never live in San Francisco. And that was my impression of San Francisco was pretty much 19th Ave for the longest time. Okay, okay. You know, and then um, once they built in the, and then in the mid seventies, when they built a ferry from Larkspur (laughs) and they built the Embarcadero Center in the seventies, so my godparents and my godbrother and sisters, they lived in Larkspur. So I would always spend like a week or two during school holidays with them and we'd hang out. And once they built a ferry, my, my godsister and I, we would always get on the ferry and we'd go to the Embarcadero Center. And that was like our playground. We'd get to go like just hang out in the Embarcadero Center all day long and run around by ourselves. So to me, the Embarcadero Center still like really embraces that 70s architecture and a big part of my childhood. I still love walking through the Embarcadero Center. Like, it's just the different, like, levels and the way it's built. And then, like, the whole, like, uh, plaza out in front of that. Like, the Hyatt Regency was huge. Like, we would be kids and just go in there and just trip out on, like, looking at the, looking at the sculpture and the different floors. And, like, we'd ride up and down the elevators for fun. And, like, yep. you know. And so that whole part of San Francisco is huge for me. And, and um, you know, and especially since they tore the freeway down, it's, like, so much better. Mm-hmm. Like I grew up with the, you know, I grew up with the 480 going across the, the ferry building all the time. Right. And, you know, we would go and, and like, they always had the, like the flea market at Justin Herman Plaza. And like, we'd go there and buy stupid kooka beads in the seventies and stuff like that. But that's kind of my earliest San Francisco impressions. Okay. Sorry about that detour. Let's, um, huh? let's, let's jump back into um, moving over to Petrero and 24th, did you say? 24th of Petrero. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and, and what's funny for me, that time period. So, when I was in, when I was like sophomore, junior, senior, and the year after high school, those four years, I spent so much time hanging out on Broadway and Polk okay. Street, right? And so I hung out in the city a lot. And like, I would always be just running around, like hanging out the Mabuhe, the Stone. Back in the, back in that, back in the eighties, there was like all these rock clubs in North Beach. There was Wolfgang's, the old Waldorf, uh, the Stone, the Mab, the Rock on Broadway, right? So there's all these like clubs. And then like, you know, like I watched the mosh pit become invented. Like, wow. like I used to, I used to hang out at the Mabuhe, which was all skinhead punks. And then across the street was a stone with a bunch of, it was all long hair, like Exodus, like possessed death angel guys. And then I watched, I watched the, you know, I, I was part of the scene of like the skinheads coming over and hanging out with the long hairs and they kind of hated each other at first. And then we all started getting along through the miracle of drugs. And, <laughs> And then that's how the mosh pit started. And it started right. like in the stone and at Ruthie's in Berkeley. And, and um, with all these kids who were like dropping acid, doing speed and listening to like metal bands, punk bands. Yeah, that was really cool. But I'd never lived in the city. So then all of a sudden I'm living here and I would take the 33 across the city, which is a great bus to go from like 24th and Matura all the way to the upper hate. Like yep. it's beautiful. It's a beautiful ride. And um so I worked, I worked at the Ashbury Market for a couple of years. I, I met my now ex-wife the day I moved to San Francisco. Oh. And uh, so we got together, and, and we were together for like 15 years. Um, but um, she was super into traveling. And like I'd always wanted to travel, but I just never knew how to do it kind of thing. And, you know, it's just like whatever, insecure 24-year-old kid. Um, so she took off and went sailing and she went to New Zealand and sailed from New Zealand to New Caledonia to Australia 
Jesus. So she was gone for a few months and I was like, I was like, Oh, I, you know, like I miss you. Like I'm going to come meet you. So my first trip out of the country was I flew from LA to Darwin, Australia and ended up meeting up with my ex-wife at the time or my girlfriend who was at the time um, in the middle of nowhere. And we ended up, we ended up working on like a squash farm and like hunting crocodiles and kangaroos and like working for these bikers and like, Darwin is closer, like where we were in the jungle, like we were closer to Indonesia than anywhere in Australia, basically. Oh, wow. We were right across the channel. So it was this huge, like, awakening of culture, right? Yeah. So, you know, so like all of a sudden I'm in the middle of nowhere and I'm like, these guys could kill me and nobody has a clue where I am. <laughs> right. And um, it was funny. It's like I, I, my, uh, the guy I worked for, his name was Wee. He's this Australian cat, tattoos everywhere. And he, they, he took me out hunting one night and – I was like, dude, they're gonna kill me and rape my girlfriend. Like, we're in the, like, I had no idea where we were. We're out in the jungle. And, like, you know, a week later, we were drinking beers and I was laughing. And I told him the story. And, and, you know, he was just like, why would, like, he, here's this, like, hardcore biker looking at me like I'm the violent, crazy person. Yeah, right. And he's like, why would you think that? And I was just like, I'm American. <laughs> like, yeah. What we do? I feel like every, especially white, lower middle class and up person should experience that feeling once in their lives right yeah yeah it was crazy because i was like in the middle of nowhere working for these biker guys and they were way more they were tough and like if, i mean you wouldn't want to cross them right but in general they were like they didn't think as crass as an american you know it's not like I'm scared to go to the gas station because those guys might kidnap me and bear me up to my neck for fun. You know, right. Like, <laughs> right. like America's a fucked up place. <laughs> so, okay. Take us out of, I, I assume you didn't stay there. Right. Much so, longer. right. So I spent six months in Australia. We hitchhiked across the country. Um, that was fantastic. Amazing. Like driving across, you know, the main highway across Australia is like two lanes. Right. And there's just kangaroos everywhere. And um, yeah, like dead kangaroos because the truckers run them over for sport because they're they're considered a nuisance, right? Uh, yeah, it, it's it's that weird, you know. And super heavy racism out in the boat, out in the jungle in Australia. Heavy, like we came across some really sketchy situations where there's like six bikers and a naked Aboriginal chick in a pond, and it's like uh, turn around now, turn yeah. around, yeah, like God. like. Not cool. Like I went to this one town called Camel Wheel. We're talking 1991, and uh, they had a pub. And I go in the pub, and behind the bar is a room with a pool table. And so I go in there, and there's like a window from that room to the bar. And I'm like, sweet, let's play some pool. And I lean in the window to the bartender. I'm like, hey, yeah, can I get a couple beers? And he's like, looks at me shocked. He's like, what are you doing in there? And I'm like, I, I want to play pool. And he's like, that's the Bung's room. Get out of there. And like, oh, this is where the black people get to hang out. Like they had separate bathrooms for black people in that town. Jeez. It was oh, it, it was that weird. Like I'd already heard about like racism from America in the fifties when like you know segregation and all that. I'd never experienced it. Right. But out in the middle of nowhere, Australia, it was just like oh, that still exists. Jeez. So, yeah, it was trippy. But that was a great trip. Like we hitchhiked across the country, did all that, came back, uh, landed back in San Francisco, um, and. Uh, fell into being a butcher. I kind of fell in love with being a butcher at Ashbury market before I'd gone to Australia. Okay. But I hadn't really done it much, but I was really fascinated by it. Um, and when I was in Australia and I was working for these bikers, they would raise pigs and then slaughter them and sell them to the neighbors. It's like a side, side money. 
And I was just kind of like, I just thought it was really cool. Like the dude I work for, like knives on his side, like wearing a chain. I'm like, I've always loved gear. You know, it's like I was a catcher in Little League, not because I was good, but because I liked the gear. And uh, so I was like, that's cool. And when I came back, I got a job at um, the real food market on Sutter between Van Ness and Polk, which doesn't right. exist anymore. Right. Um, and I just, the guy, it was a real small meat counter. It was just me and the manager and I didn't know shit. And he taught me some stuff, but then he left and I hustled my way. And uh, I was going to sail to Hawaii with my, my girlfriend at the time. But then I was like, well, if I stay here and I take on this manager job, even though I don't know anything, it, it'll look good on a resume that I, the only thing else I have on my resume is like, fired 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 drug addict you know it's like (laughs) so i was like you know i'm 26 i should probably like start building a resume i guess maybe and uh so i started doing that so then i kind of was managing this meat department for a couple years and i learned a lot i taught myself a lot i would you know i would call my fish guys and ask them how to fillet fish like you know but I really dug what I did. I really dug the job. Did they? Did um, the dude who butchered the pig in Aus- or pigs in Australia? Did he teach you any of that stuff? Uh-uh. Oh, no, you just, just, you just saw it. Yeah, I just saw it happening, and I, like I like I helped him like wrap some pork chops. I didn't really do anything, but I was just really fascinated by it. Like, for, like in a weird, in a weird like primordial way, it connected with me. Um, so then I started doing it. I did it for a couple of years at Real Foods, and I was like, this is cool. Like. When people ask what you do for a living, I really like saying I'm a butcher. That I really dig that. It just really was awesome for me. Um, and then my friend who was squatting in Amsterdam, uh, he's, he's like called me up and I hadn't seen him in a long time. And he's like, hey, there's 500 bucks at Western Union. Come visit me. I'm like, whoa. I'm like, cool. I'm going to Amsterdam. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I went to Amsterdam and I squatted out there for like six months and grew weed, sold weed to cafes and just, you know, smoked weed and rode my bike around Amsterdam and was like, As you do. this is really awesome. Yeah. And I, like, I never wanted to go to Europe. Like, you know, my mom and her traveling, she always told me I needed to go to Europe. And that, she was always into Europe. And I was always kind of like, ah, that's where all the white people go. It's like white people, Disneyland. Fuck that. I want to go to Madagascar. <laughs> I want to go to, I want right. to go to like crazy places, you know? Right. Like I always wanted to go to like the Gaza Strip and just like, what the fuck is going on there? I want to go check this out. <laughs> Like, that's some crazy shit. Like, just flash yeah. your peace signs and be like, I'm right. just checking it out, y'all. You're like, I'm cool over here. <laughs> I'm on your side. Um, you know, um, but the, my buddy bought me a plane ticket. So I was like, I guess I'm going to Amsterdam. And then I just fell in love with Europe. I was like, this is the most civilized country I've ever been to in my life. Like, you can, you can smoke. It's like, basically, if you're not being an asshole, cool, whatever you want. You know, just don't yeah. be a dick, which it fits in right with how I think. Exactly. That's so my that slogan. Like, yeah. So, so I did that for like six months and then I came back and uh, moved in with my, with my girlfriend in Oakland and uh, over on like 40th and Broadway. Okay. And, um, and then I got a job at this old school butcher shop on, in Rockridge uh, called Verbrugge Meats. It's like right, right next to Yasai Market. It's right like college in Claremont across from the Safeway. Yeah. So, you know, on my resume, it says managed meat department, all this bullshit. And uh, so the dude hired me, and about two weeks later, he's like, you don't really know half what you said, right? And I'm like, yeah, no. And he's like, but you're really good with the customers, so we're going to keep you. And I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> and so I was the youngest butcher by like 30 years. So I learned from all these like old school cats, old San Francisco cats who, who like guys that grew up in their dad's butcher shops. Who were like, I didn't want to be a butcher, but my fucking dad made me be a butcher. You know, that kind of mentality, like they kind of – I learned from guys whose lineage was like depression era butchers. 
Wow. Right. All these old guys. So, you know, I learned to cut like the tip of my finger off and just keep working like yeah. shit like that. Like you don't, you don't go to the doctor, you know, any shout outs, any names you want to drop of those, uh, those guys? you know, like Verbrugge meets in Oakland, Jerry Verbrugge. He's like my illegitimate father. Um, <laughs> you know, we have very much, uh, now that I'm, now that I'm really successful, like he's given me the, uh, you know, like I'm proud of you. Yeah. But up you know, Hat on the back. Right. But I'm 55. I'm as old as he was the day he hired me in 1992. <laughs> like, wow. He's wow. like, he'll be 80 in August. But, okay. um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was rough. Like, you know, it was, it was old school, man. You go to work for 12 hours, five days a week. And if we need you to stay, you're staying, you right. know, shit like that. Like there's no HR department, you know, yeah. well, barely any labor laws. I mean, no, no. I mean, I've had meat thrown in my face. Like, why'd you put this in the counter? Like slam, you know, you know, like a, an abused apprentice makes a better butcher kind of mentality. Right. Yeah. Very much like, you know, shit they used to do like they used to put like fish guts in the floor sink and pour hot water on them and just be like yo dave you need to clean this out oh, fuck. and it was like that test right like okay i'm not gonna bitch i'll just do it and like the more i did it the more they would respect me right because i'm like whatever i don't give a fuck yeah and um and that was before like latex gloves or anything like that mm -hmm. <laughs> but i learned a lot there and then uh and then i ended up moving back to santa cruz with, with my ex-wife and I got a job at Shopper's Corner and I learned a bunch there, like breaking beef and how to do carcass and do more. Like, I, I just really wanted to, uh, I wanted to be able to tell the stories that these old butchers told hmm. authentically. And, yeah. um, you know, for me, it was this thing of like, like all these old guys would talk about what, a, like how it sucks to bone out beef plates. And so I was like, I want to do that. I don't care if it sucks. Mm. I want to be able to bitch about it. You know, it's like, <laughs> I want, I want to be that old school butcher. Like I want to go through what they went through. Like, you know, and um, you know, I've cut the shit out of my hand. I've, I've, I've done it all. And now they all respect the shit out of me now, which is, it's not as much like I wanted their respect, but I also wanted to be their peer. You know, it's like, right. I want them, and now it's, it's been kind of cool. Cause you know, I mean, we'll get to it, but like now I'm kind of the last the last of that generation. Hmm. When I got into butchering, nobody was getting into it. Everybody, even the old guys were like, go find something else to do. This is a dying trade. This is hmm. bullshit. But I really love doing it. So it wasn't even about like, it wasn't even about making a ton of money. It was about, I, I have something I get to do every day that I like instead of doing a job I hate, but making a ton of money. That was Dave Budworth. Join us Thursday when Dave will share more stories from his life and his business, Marina Meats, during the pandemic. Music for Storied San Francisco is by Otis McDonald. Photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. The show is hosted and produced by me. Michelle and I have produced more than 120 episodes over the last three years, and you can find them all over at our website, storiedsf.com. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as well as just about everywhere you can listen to podcasts. Please subscribe to stay up to date on all the content we publish. And if you have any feedback for us, or you just want to say hi, our email is storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Stay strong, stay safe, and stay healthy.